The last two weeks of class are going to deal with martyrs, and we'll see their locations uh, on the map in just a few minutes. I uh, contemplated doing Second Clement, contemplated Epistle of Barnabas, but I, I didn't think we should do a history class without looking and acknowledging Eusebius. And so that's why I decided to stick with the plan. You see from, uh, from the screen the years that Eusebius lived outside the parameters of our second century focus. But I think I've already hinted as to why Eusebius is important because what he recorded in the early part of the fourth century related to incidents that took place in the second century and toward the end of the second century. And we're going to read specifically a letter that he included in his history that came from a church over in France to a group of churches in Asia Minor. Uh, Eusebius was a bishop. Now last week we talked about Justin Martyr and I think after class somebody asked me well, I think they asked in class, didn't they, Leland, about uh, what role did Justin play in the church? And Justin, as far as we know, I don't think was a church officer or church official. But Eusebius was, and he became bishop of Caesarea. There is some question as to exactly when he became bishop, but somewhere in this 313 to 315 time period. And it's at about that same time period that he wrote the ecclesiastical history. He, may, he was writing the ecclesiastical history, which is a ten-volume history of the church. He was writing it well before he became bishop, but it wasn't published and made available until sometime around the 311, 314, 315 period at about the time that he became the bishop of Caesarea. I thought that I would, uh, and this is going to be uh, interesting to me, may not be interesting to you, connection with Otter Creek. I thought I'd look up uh, Caesarea. Not that Eusebius ever preached here or Logan. Not that I was going to say, this is really No, no, this was going to be a stretch. <laughs> I, I, I can tell from your reaction. I decided in my little handy encyclopedia of early Christianity, which is a definitive encyclopedia on a long period of time in church history. By the way, edited by a CSC guy, I've mentioned this before, edited by Everett Ferguson out at ACU. This is a definitive encyclopedia of not only second century but beyond. So you but, have those next week for $10, right? Do I have? <laughs> oh, thank you, John, for reminding me. I still have two books back there. Switzer, you need a book. You need to read this period. You've been in class now for two weeks. So, if he pays $20, you'll give the other one away. <laughs> thank you, Leland. I think that's an excellent idea. So I have two books left. And Ken, just think, at night, you'd be able to read all of these things. Keep yourself wide awake. All right, back to Caesarea. I thought, well, I don't know that much about Caesarea. I need to make sure of where Eusebius was from, that sort of thing. So I went to my trusty encyclopedia to read about Caesarea. 
and I found out that it was uh, a city established by Herod, a relatively new city in the time of Jesus. Built by Herod, it was at that city, 300 years later, that Eusebius became a bishop. But as I was reading about all this, and I looked at the end to see who wrote the entry. John MacRoe, a former preacher of the Otter Creek Church. Now, Logan, is that not an interesting That is very interesting. Well, I'm not sure. Be because I was just recalling in my mind when uh, his sons did a class they here on Israel back about two years ago in the spring. His wife is here frequently, I think. John is ill, not able to get out, I think, is he? But this whole thing about, you see, about Caesarea in this encyclopedia was written by John McRae who taught at Lipscomb when C and I were there. Phil, he was at Lipscomb when you and Karen were there. And um, left Lipscomb and went to Wheaton, I think, and ended his career, I believe, at Wheaton. Did archaeological work. Did a lot of archaeology. and. He's a very good scholar. So Otter Creek has, has really a good, strong, legitimate connection to historians who have studied uh, this period. Anyway, I just thought that might be interesting. I thought about reading a little bit of his article, but we probably don't have time for that. Uh, Eusebius was not only a historian, which is what he is known for more than anything else, but he was also a biblical exegete, and he was also an apologist. He was a prolific writer of the period, but again, most famous work is the Ecclesiastical History, which is 10 volumes, and for the first time, I have spent quite a bit of time reading throughout the, primarily the first five volumes, but I just purchased the second five volumes. I want to read them, and I know you think that's extremely nerdy, but it is interesting reading to see what this guy, writing in the early part of the fourth century, said about the full gamut of Christianity up to his time period. I think this is also interesting for you to realize, get, knowing the culture in which he was writing, the time period, Eusebius. Now we're going to look at something he told us about the second century, but Eusebius lived in one of the most challenging, exciting times of Christian history. The Diocletian persecution, uh, the last persecution of Christians from in, within the Roman Empire, uh, in the early, early part of the fourth century, 303 to 311, somewhere in that period, uh, he survived the Diocletian persecution. He was jailed, I think, at one point, but he obviously what did not lose his life. He also lived during the period of time of the transition of the empire from the heathen culture and heathen religion to Christianity. He wrote a biography of Constantine. He was involved with Constantine as Constantine uh, established the Roman Empire as a Christian empire. So that Eusebius was a very influential and, and uh, 
great player within the history. And also involved in the Arian controversy. This was the controversy in the early church about the nature of Jesus. Uh, Eusebius, from what little I've been able to detect about it, Eusebius at first seemed to uh, side with Arius. Uh, but then he went over to the Trinitarian side, for lack of a better way to express it, and became a strong proponent of what the Council of Nicaea finally decided. Council of Nicaea, goodness, I didn't think I'd ever forget this date. What was it, 325? Is that 325? So you see what was happening at the time Eusebius was writing his history from the in one and a quarter of a century, in 25 years, the Diocletian persecution, the transition from uh, the heathen basis to the Roman Empire to the Christian, and then the Arian controversy about the very nature of Jesus. A very uh, dramatic, challenging, and I guess from our perspective we can say interesting time period. We're going to get in the reading in just a moment. Um, book five, we're going to look at the first two pages photocopied from the Lake translation. The other translation that I liked that comprises the text of the letter did not have the opening section of book five and I wanted us to look at that because Eusebius talks about some of his uh, motivation in writing his history and I wanted I wanted us to get a, a, glan a glance at that. And then in section one of book five, we're going to look at the text. Now, I, I think I've said this enough that you all know what we're looking at here. We're looking at a letter today, and that's what we're going to read, a letter from the churches in Gaul, Lyon and Vienne, to the churches in Asia Minor in the provinces of Asia and Phrygia. The letter was preserved, and I, I wondered, and I found the answer to this, I wondered how in the world or how did it come to be that Eusebius had a copy of this letter? Caesarea, really, and this was begun by Origen in the third century, Origen, another great Christian leader, Origen created a great library in Caesarea. He had scribes. He had people copying all sorts of Christian documents. Here's Eusebius. He becomes bishop of Caesarea. A great library has been established there. He has all of that material at his disposal for writing his history. I imagine that the letter we read today was one of the documents that was preserved in the library in Caesarea in a library that was begun by Origen. Uh, just fascinating story to me. So Eusebius' history was written in the early fourth century, but the letter that he quotes and the letter we read today was written in 177, and we can be pretty sure of that date. There is a, um, even Eusebius himself, I think, uh, gives some varying dates, but this is the one that most scholars feel that we can uh, hang our hat on. And if it was in 177, here we are. If it was in 177, it was in the time of Marcus Aurelius, who was a 
stoic by religious persuasion. There are some, and I'm certainly not equipped to say one way or the other on this, uh, Irenaeus may be the writer of the letter. There is reason to believe that he was the writer by scholars who know a bunch more about this than I do. The letter describes the persecution and the martyrdom of Christians in Gaul. Now here's where the map comes into play. I, I, I wanted us to see the the breadth of some of the things that we've looked at and especially some of the martyrdoms and persecutions that we've looked at. Next week, Leland is going to look at Perpetua and Felicity. Carthage, right? North Africa. You see where I have uh, accented some of these in yellow. I hope that's clear enough to you. And I've also circled some. Here is Lyon and Vienne, up here on the Rhone River in France. This is where the persecution and the martyrdom we read about today took place. Way over here. Rome is here. More than likely, Ignatius was martyred in Rome. We don't know, we don't have a specific account of that, but the supposition is that as he went across Asia Minor, on his martyrdom journey, that the journey did culminate with his being executed in Rome. Down here is Carthage, North Africa. This is where Perpetua and Felicity, that we'll read about next week, will be martyred. And that is a fascinating story. It is. Over here is Smyrna. And that's where we. Uh, find martyrdoms taking place as well. And we have some accounts of that. And then here's, here's where this connection. Oh, Caesarea. I tried to highlight it on the copy I gave you. Caesarea where Eusebius was bishop down here in the lower right-hand corner to the northwest of Jerusalem. This was a city that Herod built just about the time Jesus was born. Uh, to honor himself, obviously. So this is where Eusebius was bishop and where the great library was. The letter we read today was written from these churches over here, maybe by Irenaeus, over to these churches in this area of Bergeria, Bithynia, areas that we have studied before, and we saw that there were martyrdoms up here in Bithynia as well. Okay. Anybody have any question about that brief look at the geography and history? Anybody? These are some questions um, that maybe you can keep in mind. Um, we are going to look at at what Eusebius says about his writing of history in comparison to other histories he was familiar with in that day. And then we're going to identify by name, and I decided to put some of the names over here. Never heard of those names, have you? These are your brothers and sisters who in most every case gave their life and refused to recant 
faith in Jesus and they gave their lives over in the area of France and we'll read their specific names there's a diversity of folks there's a 90 the text actually says 90 plus a 90 year old man a woman several, a couple of women and a 15 year old boy gave their lives uh, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this but we're going to uh, see a clear example of some of the accusations that were labeled against Christians not only that they didn't worship the emperor but that they were involved in immoral activity and you've heard about those accusations before we're going to actually see in the text where some of those accusations were leveled against them and then identify methods of persecution some just sound awful we'll look at some of those and then how does this information affect us today those are just some things you might want to keep in mind here's what we're going to read and uh, it does pretty easily fall into categories uh, the writing does deal with each of these people and tells something about each one of them and what kind of suffering what kind of death they endured okay look at uh, first page this is a photocopy from the lake translation you see that labeled attribution is given there at the top this is where it says book five it's the first sheet and about three-quarters of the way down of the text this is Eusebius's own words other writers of historical works have confined themselves to the written tradition of victories in wars of triumphs over enemies of the exploits of generals and the valor of soldiers men stained with blood and with countless murders for the sake of children and country and possessions but it is war's most peaceful waged for the very peace of the soul and men who therein have been valiant for truth rather than for country and for piety rather than for their dear ones that our record of those who order their lives according to God will inscribe on everlasting monuments I don't think I read that very well with the emphasis that probably should be there it is for piety rather for their dear ones that our record of those who order their lives according to God will inscribe on everlasting monuments he wants his record of these people to be an everlasting monument to the lives and the deaths of these Christian brothers and sisters it is the struggles look at the metaphor it is the struggles of the athletes of piety and their valor which braved so much trophies won from demons and victories against unseen adversaries and the crowns at the end of all that it will proclaim for everlasting remembrance then section one he says I'm going to quote the letter 
from the churches in Gaul that tell about the persecution. And if we have time, and I think we will, at the very end, I want to read his words after he has quoted this letter. Okay, let's look at, we've looked at number five. Let's look at, uh, we'll call them sections 11 and 12. And I know that this is taken out of context, and I may not as clearly as, as I should put these in context for you, but maybe you will be able to, uh, to see it. Um, he's describing the events, or the church is describing the events in Gaul. Then the others were divided, and the proto-witnesses were manifestly ready and finished their confession with all eagerness. Now this section describes that not everybody was faithful. And in the text, there are some people that were faithful. They fell away, but then they came back and made confession. So you had people that stood staunchly by their faith from the beginning. There were some that fell to the wayside, were aborted. There were some who fell by the wayside and came back just as it would be today. Finished their confession with all eagerness, but some appeared unprepared and untrained, weak as yet, and unable to endure so great a conflict. About 10 of these proved abortions, causing us great grief and sorrow beyond measure, and impairing the zeal of others who had not yet been seized, but who through suffering all kinds of afflictions continued constantly with the witnesses and did not forsake them. Then all of us feared greatly on the count of uncertainty as their confession, not because we dreaded the sufferings to be endured, but because we looked to the end and were afraid that some of them might fall away. Then 14, some of our heathen servants were also seized. So see, you could get in trouble if you were connected to some of these folks. Some of our heathen servants also were seized as the governor had commanded that all of us should be examined publicly. These being ensnared by Satan and fearing for themselves the tortures which they beheld the saints endured and being also urged on by the soldiers accused us falsely of Thestian banquets and Oedipodean intercourse. Now you've heard before that accusations were made against Christians of eating human flesh. And that's what this banquet was about. So they were accused, and you can see where that came from. Jesus said, this is my body, this is my blood. As, long, as often as you meet together, I want you to eat my flesh, drink my blood. Well, these people on the outside hearing this, they accused them of eating human flesh. Yeah. We know what year that the uh, doctrine of transubstantiation came uh, to be. Was it before this, or... No, I would say it's after this. I would have to have looked that up, John. Uh, I was curious. Is, where this, is, 
that where this came, this uh, charge came from, though? Well, of course, the Catholic Church would say it goes all the way back to Jesus when Jesus said, "This is my body, and this is that's the reason this is they my were blood. saying that they did." Yeah, that. right. Because it's it's we say it's figurative language, but uh, of course, transubstantiation is really a doctrine of of uh, of the process by which the Lord's Supper, the, the bread and the wine become the real flesh and the real blood. Uh, and that came later. It's going to be my, my only, uh, my, my thought at this point. I think the complaints here of the Romans are complaints because of misunderstanding. Oh, yeah. And they just sort of overheard, yeah. oh, they're saying mm -hmm. eat body. It's not a doctrinal no. issue, and it's not it, a I think that's exactly right. At this point, it was yeah, this point. totally a misunderstanding. So, uh, And then you've got the, the incest. Terry? 1215. Do what now? Uh, 1215 is the Council of La is that when it was? Okay, good. Thank you. It would have had its roots going back prior to that time. That's Terry. Is that when it was officially? Officially, yeah. It would have taken some time for that to have developed, but uh, the uh, the uh, intercourse. Uh, would have been incest, that they were being accused of, of incest. So there's not a lot said. This is the only reference in the whole letter to it, but it does give you uh, a visual of the fact that as early as the second century and probably even before that, this kind of charge was being made against Christians. Okay, uh, let's look at six. Well, let's see, 17. Jump down to 17. Um, all these are easily numbered, of course. The whole wrath of the populace and governor and soldiers were aroused exceedingly against Sanctus, uh, the deacon from Vienne, Martyrus, and I've, I'm making my best effort at pronouncing these. Probably, you know, probably don't care, but uh, these are the where the accent should be, whether I'm able to put it correctly or not, doesn't matter, I guess. Atalus, and then it lists uh, Blondina, and Blondina is a lady, and a great deal is mentioned about Blondina. Look at 18. Now, 18 through 19, 41 through 42, 56 through 57 deals with Blondina. For while we all trembled, and her earthly mistress, who was herself also one of the witnesses, feared that an account of the weakness of her body, that on account of the weakness of her body, she would be unable to make bold confession. Blondina was filled with such power as to be delivered and raised above those who were torturing her by turns from morning till evening in every manner, so that they acknowledged that they were conquered and could do nothing more to her. And they were astonished at her endurance, as her entire body was mangled and broken. And they testified that one of these forms of to torture 
was sufficient to destroy life, not to speak of so many and so great sufferings. But the blessed woman, like a noble athlete, that's another reference to the athletic <coughs> involvement, like a noble athlete, renewed her strength in her confession and her comfort and recreation and relief from the pain of her suffering was in exclaiming, I am a Christian and there is nothing vile done by us. Let's see. Go over to 41. That continues the Blondina story. Blondina was suspended on a stake and exposed to be devoured by the wild beast who should attack her. And because she appeared as if hanging on a cross, and because of her earnest prayers, she inspired the combatants with great zeal. For they looked on her in her conflict and beheld with their outward eyes in the form of their sister, him who was crucified for them that he might persuade those who believe on him that everyone who suffers for the glory of Christ has fellowship always with the living God. Somehow, as they had her on the stake there, those observing were reminded of Jesus on the cross. As none of the wild beasts at that time touched her, she was taken down from the stake and cast again into prison. She was preserved thus for another contest. That being victorious in more conflict, she might make the punishment of the crooked servant irrevocable. And though small and weak and despised, yet clothed with Christ, the mighty and conquering athlete, she might arouse the zeal of the brethren and having overcome the adversary many, excuse me, many times might receive through her conflict the crown incorruptible. Beautiful language. She was weak, small, despised, but she was clothed with Christ, the mighty and conquering athlete. Those that recanted their faith caused a great deal of um, fear within the community. Those that stood strong like Blondina encouraged the community, all of which, of course, is quite natural. Uh, another one, 56 and 57. Uh, she actually starts in 55, but, and after the scourging, after the wild beast, after the roasting seat, you can only imagine what that might be, she was finally enclosed in a net and thrown before a bull. And having been tossed about by the animal, but feeling none of the things which were happening to her on account of her hope and firm hold upon what had been entrusted to her and her communion with Christ, she also was sacrificed. 
and the heathen themselves confessed that never among them had a woman endured so many and such terrible tortures. Uh, someone asked John, it may have been John that asked, is it possible that this is embellished? You know, we have no way of knowing, but I think not. All right, let's see, 20 through 24. Let's see what we can cover, and then uh, you can read some of these others on your own, but 20 through 24, this is Sanctus. Sanctus also endured marvelously and superhumanly all the outrages which he suffered while the wicked men hoped by the continuance and severity of his tortures to wring something from him which he ought not to say he girded himself against them with such firmness that he would not even tell his name or the nation or city to which he belonged or whether he was bond or free but answered in the Roman tongue to all their questions I am a Christian he confessed this instead of name and city and race and everything besides, and the people heard from him no other word. There arose, therefore, on the part of the governor and his tormentors a great desire to conquer him. But having nothing more than they could do to him, they finally fastened red-hot brazen plates to the most tender parts of his body. And his body was a witness of his sufferings, being one complete wound and bruise, drawn out of shape and altogether unlike a human form. Christ, suffering in him, manifested his glory, delivering him from his adversary and making him an example for the others, showing that nothing is fearful where the love of the Father is and nothing painful where there is the glory of Christ. Easy, word, easy words for us. But boy, if we were in those circumstances. Quite difficult. Okay. As you can see, there's more. You got the 90-year-old man. And there is, there, I'll read one little thing. 90-year-old man and then Ponticus, age 15. I thought this was uh, a good, oh, and I got to read that in. Look at... Uh, Look at 53. After all these, on the last day of the contest, Blondina was again brought in with Ponticus, a boy about 15 years old. They had been brought every day to witness the sufferings of others. So see, that was another part of the punishment. We're going to make you look at what we're doing to all these others. Uh, let's see. To witness the suffering of others and been passed to swear by the idols, but because they remained steadfast and despised them, the multitude became furious so that they had no compassion for the youth of the boy nor respect for the sex of the woman. So they clearly state there, we don't care if you're man, woman, child, you believe in Jesus. Uh, at this particular time, in this particular place, you're going to suffer for it. Now, I don't have time to read this. At the very end, if you want to read this, it tells what they did with the dead body, with the corpses. And they would let them lie out for five or six days. They would burn them, 
take the ashes, sweep them into the Rhone River, and then mock the fact, you think you're going to be raised from the dead? Look what we've done to your body. It's going to be pretty tough to find your body after we've done to it what we've done to it. And it was because they believed in the resurrection. Uh, let's see. Yeah, 63, very last section. says, and, they, and this they did, if able to conquer God and prevent their new birth, that as they said, they may have no hope of a resurrection. Um, I don't have time to read at the end of uh, Eusebius, but he does uh, contextualize the letter even a little bit more. So, and that's one of the great things about Eusebius's history. He's very careful to try to put dates down and so that we can know the dating of things. And he also quotes a lot of things from the library that we assume he had available to him. And this was one of those letters. So he quotes a lot of things and gives a little bit of interpretation, but doesn't quote him. Leland, you've got things to pass out for next week?